will be more of an overview um, as we look at what it is we're going to be studying for the next uh, 10 weeks together. Uh, and I'll pray for us quickly before we start. Most gracious Father, we pray for the reading of your word today and pray for understanding as we uh, move through this chapter in the book of Romans. And Father, we ask for your spirit to be among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if we think about the book of Romans, um, it is, it, it's a tremendous uh, resource for us. It's a tremendous uh, theological uh, book that we can get a, an incredible amount of information and understanding from. Uh, there are pastors that have spent years and years and years just preaching through the book of Romans. It's really vast. And for us to, to for me to have 15 minutes on a Sunday to go through just Romans chapter 8, which I think is, is one of the, the pivotal chapters in the book, that's not a lot of time. So my encouragement for you is to go and this week read uh, read a chapter from Romans 1 through 7, and then next week when we come, we'll, we'll begin in 8. But um, what is what is the book of Romans? What's the purpose of it? First, we know this is a... This is a letter from Paul to the Church of Rome. Um, it is his desire that he can come to the Church of Rome. And who who planted this church in Rome is something that was kind of on my mind because we're a one-year church that we are, are planting here in Maysville. And how did this church come to be? Well, we don't really know. Paul didn't plant this church. Uh, Peter didn't plant this church. It was most likely planted or, or started by Jewish converts. And so then we, we look at what is the purpose of this letter? Why did Paul deign to write this? And there is a lot of opinion about that. Um, I'll give you three things that I think that, that this letter serves to do and why it's important for us. One, it's kind of a summary of Paul's theology. It's uh, seated in the beginning Right, is before Paul's letters to the church, but it, it's actually, you can see much of what we read in Galatians and, and Ephesians and, and Corinthians and Colossians. You can see much of those things in Romans chapter 8, and it's, and it's laid out and, and surmised in such a way that we can, uh, understand sort of this bigger picture of what it is that Paul believes and what it is that he is teaching the churches that he is writing to. And it, it's very important because it very clearly spells out not only the the gospel of Jesus, but our need for it. And that's what makes Romans chapter 8 so beautiful. You'll see as we start next week, as we read it today, um, it's, it's such a beautiful thing, and it's so necessary for us to understand what our need for Christ is and how how incredible our need for, for Christ is. The second thing that I think that the book of Romans serves to do is that it teaches unity. And unity in the church of Rome was a big deal because it was kind of a kaleidoscope. A lot of different people there, but there were a lot of different beliefs. People were coming out of uh, sometimes some pretty heretical beliefs. And there were also were a lot of people with a lot of Judaism and a lot of tradition and those types of things, and th those issues clouded their understanding of Christ. 
And so it was to bring unity, but not just within that church, but within all of Christendom for us to have unity in the body of Christ centered around like theology, for us to believe the same things and to understand the truth of Christ and for us to be drawn together to put aside our our petty differences and the things that separate us. And finally, and certainly not least, is to bring glory to God. This to me is kind of a, a love letter of Paul. This is, this is him explaining in very intimate detail his relationship with God. We see this um, admission that, you know, the things that I want to do, I can't do because of my nature. Those are the very things that I, that I should do, but I don't desire them apart from, from Christ. I, I can't do the things of God. And that, that's a reality all of us can agree that uh, we live in that place. We want to do God's will. We want to live holy lives, uh, but our, we war with our flesh. So we see an, an intimate thing. And, and Paul also uh, understands his role in, as an apostle is one that was untimely born, one that is, that is outside. But he has a very specific mission. And his mission to these Gentile churches and uh, places like Rome, which most of them were kind of a mix of Jew and Gentile, but his ministry to the gospel is designed to bring glory to God. That's his drive, that's his focus, and we see that all throughout the book of Romans. So we read through the book of Romans and we come to to chapter 8, and I'm going to read chapter 8, but I'm actually going to start in chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 19. So if you have your Bibles turn there, um, follow along as I read Romans seven nineteen through the end of chapter 8. <clears throat> For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Then we go into chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in the fa- if, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we pray for as we ought. For we do not pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what it is, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who it is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep, as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What an incredible word. What an incredible one chapter from Scripture that encapsulates the gospel so uh, completely. Our need for God is great. Our need for salvation is completely out of our grasp. I can't do anything to save myself. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can't dig down deep for the good that's inside me because there is none. There's nothing good in me save what God puts there. So as, as we go into our lesson today and as we move into the week, I want each of us to, to spend today dwelling on what we read in chapter 7 so we have an understanding of Paul's perspective of his own sin in, in his life and how that matches with our own, but also for us to, to really this week to fix our mind on this opening chapter that we're going to, or the opening verse that we're going to look at next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're honest, if we're thoughtful, we realize that we are ultimately and utterly deserving of condemnation. We don't deserve peership with God because we have blasphemed him. We have rebelled against him. So for there to be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have an incredible reason to rejoice.